Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into Power Athlete Radio. How can I sum up this episode? Well, Brett Bartholomew is basically in the driver's seat of a vision quest to be the best coach, person, leader, human, whatever you want to be. The author of Conscious Coaching does allow for the typical power athlete detours to occur along the way, which obviously include movies, politics, child rearing, and of course, well-born stories. It's the guidance that you've been looking for from a guy who has done a ton of research. Here it is, episode 570. That's how I got my start in Photoshopping. I, um, as the story goes, and I've told it on this podcast before, I had, you know, the only thing I used the computer for was booking travel uh, when I was an NFL player. I didn't use the computer. I didn't get online. I just fucking read books and thought I lifted weights and had this like cool idea that I was going to be quite John Kane just wandering the fucking earth. And uh, so then I get out of the NFL and I get into this, whatever the fuck we do now. And I needed to jump on the computer and had zero skills. And all of a sudden I got this email uh, that was dressed to me and CC'd like 150 people of me and like photoshopped into a body of water with a dolphin blowing a load on my face. <laughs> what? Just yeah. happened. Just fucking out of nowhere. My buddy, uh, uh, Brian, I'm not going to say his last name. He just sends this to me and then CC'd like hundreds of people, like many of which I didn't even know. And they were just responding like, this is the funniest thing. And I was like, <gasps> like I'd always been able to defend myself anywhere I've ever been. Never had a problem throwing hands. And I realized I was getting slapped around like a little bitch. Yeah. So I hit up Joey, who was um, a designer buddy of mine. And I was like, Joey, get over here. How do I defend myself? So he came over. Uh, I downloaded Illustrator Photoshop on my laptop. And he showed me a few things. I'm like, well, how many hours do I need before I'm actually good enough to defend myself? And he's like, I don't know, like 100. No problem. <laughs> so I basically started Photoshopping 18 hours a day for like six days. I had like All I did was just fucking Photoshop things. I used to hit people up. I'm like, you need anything Photoshopped? And just did a million different things. And uh, by the that's end a lot of, of dicks. By the end of 100 that's hours. That's an incredible amount of dicks. By uh, at the end of a hundred hours, I was well skilled, and then I just started a fucking daily barrage of like that CC to that person, just murdering him in any way I could. And uh, you know who else is deadly with the Photoshop? Fifty Cent when he was going through all the <laughs> he would like Jada Kiss and Ja Rule and all that. Every day, this dude would have like just something that was so ridiculous. Even though, like the old piggy bank video, if you remember that song, if you guys are hip hop heads at all, like the animations that they did making fun of everybody he was, you know, in a beef with at that time was great. And now, unfortunately, we don't have that in hip hop. We have a little Uzi Vert and a little pump, you know, and the competitive nature has been taken out of it, which is very sad. Uh, I feel like hip hop died. Uh, I think there's some people keeping it alive. I don't think it's like died, died until like mumble rappers are the only things left on this planet. You know, they're still, but yes, I, I get it. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, like uh, I'm so well, rap confused. and hip hop are different though. Rap and hip hop are as different as like strength and conditioning and uh, you know, people using the fitness moniker and, and not everybody, right. It would be something below fitness because there are good coaches that focus on fitness and what you, but you get what I mean, right? Like people that well, are like, I'm a trainer and they're not, anything they don't do any of that well i mean wasn't kind of rap and hip-hop synonymous for a long time i mean well, hip-hop is like the movement hip-hop is like the whole thing if you listen to uh, one of my favorite movies is we actually had ali kirshner who's on our team watch it last night because it's part of like onboarding it's called from something to nothing the art of rap 
and it's an iced tea film and he goes and kind of talks to uh, like everybody from Big Daddy Kane to Eminem to Kanye to, you know, Salt and Peppa to MC Light about what their process was like rapping. Cause I'm a huge hip hop head. It mm-hmm. got me through when I was hospitalized. And, um, you know, one of the guys explains it really well. He's like, hip hop is the movement in its entirety. Not everybody uh, in hip hop is a real like lyricist and artist. You have some people that are just kind of rappers and, and you see that now, right? A lot of these people think they can rap, but if you were to watch like BET's the cipher and you watch kind of the, you know, the, the people that are maybe in it just because they have good production and good uh, beats, they're, they're not going to be in it long, you know, every sure. day. But yeah, it's interesting to hear how that culture describes itself of like, being different than hip hop and rap and training and working out. You kind of see a lot of parallels uh, in hip hop. I would say the one biggest thing, and then I'll shut up, but the biggest thing is we're watching this. We're hearing all these hip hop artists talk about who they were influenced by. So red man's like, man, for me, it was like the syllable sound combined of big daddy Kane and Tretch by naughty by nature. And they're very good at like acknowledging who they're inspired by. Whereas in strength and conditioning, right. It's like, no, this guy sucks. That guy sucks. And like, uh, I disagree, man. I've, um, but maybe I come at it from a different place in that I've always felt that we stand on the shoulders of giants. That there no, I'm are a saying lot other of people in people. our industry don't, I don't well, think a yeah, lot of people in our industry don't give credit. Well, that's, uh, that's the number one easy way to know that somebody's a fraud right. is when they start basically, I'm like, yeah, uh, you can only rip off so much France Bosch as your own. <laughs> uh, I'd like it, it disgusts me or Cal Dietz or whatever. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I'm like, it, it's. Like I shake my head at least ten times a day, and uh, you know, see different things on Instagram. I'm like, oh yeah, no, I read that book too. And right. So what, what I mean off. is, why do you think that's a different? Why do you think that's different? What I was saying is, in strength and conditioning, we don't give enough credit to other people why for inspiring that? us. It's because, because it's, a, it's an insecure field. Yeah. No, I, I was like, I, I think uh, if in in like in a lot of people's minds who are frauds, if they actually point to like, hey, this is where I got this information. It's somehow they feel like it diminishes what they do. Whereas I look at it like, dude, I, sh- I stand on the shoulders of giants. I'm more than happy to talk about, you know, Franz Bosch or Charlie Francis or where this came from or these pieces and how we assembled everything. And, um, you know, nobody's created anything. And uh, the people that have deserve to be, you know, tapped on it. And I, uh, I think what's interesting in, in, uh, in the rap game is, or at least within the hip hop stuff too, is people have very direct lineages and you can almost hear it within their stuff. And I think, you know, probably the same for strength conditioning. Yeah, no, without a doubt. I mean, that, and they talk about that even in the the documentary, which is why I have Ali watch it. I'm like, cause it's a lot of our company culture. You need to be self-competitive, but you need to be respect. You always need to respect the craft, be self-competitive, respect the craft. And I've never, I've just never identified, you know, even when I'd go to these NSCA conferences or other conferences, you'd hear people just like trash talking presenters. And I'm like, Yo, then get up there if you got it all. Like, get up yeah. there and put your stuff on. Like, and and I always thought that gaslighting around our industry was really interesting too. Where even I was told from a very early onset, like, you don't have a Twitter account, you don't have an Instagram, you don't do anything like that. And I remember hearing like, well, why? And they're like, well, what are you going to say that nobody else has already said? And so I remember I actually said that to one of my athletes when they were like, why don't you have social media? And they're like, dude. So let me get this straight. You think that somebody can only say something once and that you don't have anything of value? And it just got me rethinking of how much I bought into that hook, line and sinker of like, oh, no, this is just an insecure field that, you know, they they hide because they don't want to be criticized a lot. And, and strength and conditioning would be a lot further along if more people would be willing to like celebrate. Right. Like, I mean, text. Right. I just connected you with a friend of mine. I'm like, power athlete is the best at blank. Right. Like what, if people would celebrate more people in the 
feel and be like, yo, they're the best, do this. I learned this from them. I learned that from them. This, 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 you'd have better. But when I hear people be like, oh, the fuel would be better if we'd unionize. I'm like, you guys can't even agree on exercises. You think you're going to get yeah. a union? Uh, the, the other one too, and I think this happens all too often, is uh, a lot of people take credit for things that aren't inherently like things to t- take credit for. Like uh, if a team wins or let's say, you know, uh, I'm an NFL strength coach and I have the best players, all of a sudden that coach, everybody wants to know what he's doing. And uh, as I've told many times before at the NFL, the job of the strength coach is just not to hurt the individual, that there's no real development. And you've, you've seen this working with NFL guys. Just can't get them hurt. Got to get them training, try to make them a little bit better and allow them to go healthy into training camp and do what they do. And I think that there's this idea of like magic behind it. And it's like, dude. I'm not really interested in what those guys are doing as much so as the people that are actually developing athletes more so than people that are just shepherding them across their time at the river. No question. No question. Brett, what's your take on the Island boys? The Island boys. I feel like I'm out of the loop. Are you talking about like lonely Island, the SNL thing? No, there are these uh, two kids from real genuine artists uh, that came out with a song that went viral called Island boys. They have like their head looks like um, snorks and they have a bunch of face tattoos. Face tattoos uh, are always a win. I have yeah, several. No, I mean, uh, I mean, serious face tattoos. Uh, okay. Not like, is, oh, wow. Yeah, that is a uh, fly yeah, well, soldier. They, I'm an island boy. Yeah, they went viral. And then their uh, first live performance. Dana, the, the reason they went viral, I think, is because Dana White posted them on his social media to where I saw it and I was like, as burning them. And I was like, why is Dana White posting this? And then I realized he has COVID. So, you know, who knows? Yeah. I mean, listen, the highly credible website, exactnetworth.com states that their net worth is estimated to be around 150,000. Alex and Frankie Venegas, 20, born in Florida. I've just learned about Florida man too, which is interesting. Now, what the world really wants to know is their relationship status, which comes up as NA. So, Good news, ladies. They're eligible. But I, are, I'm are they brothers? Does it say they're brothers? Uh, that I don't know. I'm, this is a rabbit hole I'm a little bit scared to go down. Yeah, I don't know what do I'll it. find if I keep going down. They, they perform their first live show after going viral and blowing up. And they and got then, booed off? Oh, yeah. They were booed off the stage. Nice. Oh, you know what? No, it says one of them might be dating an Instagram user named Toxic Fairy. With two eyes, mind you. Both in Toxic oh. and Fairy. Mm. Callie's alias. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, th- I think I might have to change my uh, my you know secret hit uh, Twitter handle. Yeah, yeah, no catfishing for you, buddy. Those days are done. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Toxic fairy, ah, with Toxic three fairy. eyes. Oh. Oh, send, send those sweet pics. Oh boy, oh, it's good to see you guys again. What what hot yeah. takes are we gonna what what are we gonna tackle today? What's on the agenda? Uh, Chris has been I writing guess- up a very very detailed uh, you know plan of attack for like the last three weeks. I mean, I haven't seen this kid this giddy since ever. Well, I got so. some back pocket stuff, but what I want to lead off with is Brett is coming to Austin. What? In March to really? Power Athlete Headquarters. Oh my gosh. Power I Athlete. Mean, mm-hmm. I mean, are are we ready? Do do we need to get more crappy trucks to rip, rip them apart? Oh to make my it look, god. I got to This get rid is going to be awesome. I think Don't worry, I got to get rid of some stuff. I think the thing that you really have to do um if you want to be ready is every everything like this needs an appropriate uh, movie trailer horn. So, for example, it's like, in a world where power athlete and art of coaching get together and Texas hair is superb, 
This time, it's for real. My voice <laughs> is a little hoarse, but usually that works. One more time with the horn. That's Have you been smoking a lot of cigarettes lately? Your voice sounds unusually uh, no, hoarse. Coaching. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed my branded Conscious Coaching shaker bottle, but inside is small particulates of glass because that's what helps the protein digest and get into the system. That and your, and your new CBD company, the Bearded CBD Guy. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's CBD right. Yeah, with CBD oil and CBD. Yeah, Brett, we're starting a new business, and you can get in on the ground floor. Could be you, where it's CBD oil slash beard oil. And we're pretty sure that we're going to invent some science where the beard absorbs the CBD. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think that, you know, there is a, a buddy of mine in college that I convinced that if he rubbed ketchup on his face, that he would grow a beard and it had to dry because the lycopene would really get into oh the pores God. and helps everything. <laughs> so this dude and everybody has this friend. Everybody knows this archetype. It's the friend that they're, they're great. They're always going to trust you. They're kind of the party guy. You know, they wake up around noon. You wonder how they even sustain their body weight because they never seem to eat. But then you realize they drink till three in the morning. And so their body somehow converts that into usable growth fuel. But anyway, you know, so he just goes along with whatever. And he's so anxious to grow a beard. And so about a week goes in and he's like, hey, man, this isn't working. And I go, well, yeah, of course it's not. What kind of ketchup are you using? The one in the fridge? And he goes, yeah, it's Heinz. And I go, Hunts. It's got to be Hunts. And he just rears back and just smacks me right in the face. But we ruined about three of his pillow sheets. In the meantime, from just the dried ketchup beard Whoa. attempt. Uh, so was it, this was Pratik Patel? Uh, <laughs> I'm going to say yes, even though it wasn't. It was definitely Pratik. And if uh, you notice, I think it did work. Uh, it's got a little, there was a patch. There's a hint of hair there. So I'm claiming success. Huh. Why well, not? I mean, did you do a double blind study? I mean, what, what type of like control was there? Yeah, we did. We yeah, we did a double blind study. Now, this might seem like odd science, but I think the movie Little Giants proved that efficacy behind this. We compared it to people that rubbed evaporated milk on their calves every night before they went to bed. Um, so we did that. We tried Heinz. We tried Hunts, and then some people um, they just laid there and thought about beard growth for about twelve hours. So, Power Athlete Nation, want to take one minute to remind you why Power Athlete is performance for the people. We love the garage shimmer. We love the athlete that is taking their performance into their own hands. We offer eight different strength and conditioning programs reverse engineered from common goals like getting jacked, becoming more athletic, or introducing the barbell for the first time. To learn which program is best for you, head to powerathletehq.com training. If you're an enthusiast, a parent, or professional coach, we also offer education. At academy.powerathletehq.com, learn the method to the madness, the power athlete methodology, and a hell of a lot more. Next up, shop.powerathletehq.com. Hoodies, tees, sweats, shorts, you name it, we got it, including posters. You put this up in your garage gym, you're staring at it underneath the bar, I guarantee that you're going to add 10% to your next rep max. And finally... You can check us out on YouTube. We're dropping movement demonstrations, going through our setup and execution of the finer movements found on all of our Power Athlete training programs and cutting clips of this podcast that you're listening to right now. So if you want to share in this experience with your lifting buddies, go ahead, seek out Power Athlete on YouTube. And now, back to the premier podcast in strength and conditioning. Hey, hey. Wasn't that the movie with 
Rick Moranis, uh-huh. where like the running back kid, where he's like, I hear his dad rubs his calves every night with evaporated milk. <laughs> oh no, yes. he d- like your dad admits that. Yeah, yeah, the dad. Yeah, that's and like he gets him on that. So team. awesome. God, that was a great movie. Uh huh. Yeah, you're welcome for that deep. Cut. I was always a huge Rick Moranis fan. I loved everything he was in. Did you hear somebody knocked him out? Oh yeah, somebody. Yeah. He's just now resurfacing because he wanted to kind of get out of acting for a while. Well, his wife got sick, and I think with cancer, and maybe passed away, and he decided to peel out to like take care of his kids. Well, that makes even more sense. Yeah. And he was walking down the street. Look this up. Google it now. Text. I see your computer. Right, I, I'm, I'm well aware. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody walked that, you know, is those people, the idiotic people that do like the knock at random street knockouts. Somebody ran by him and just, oh, you, 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 I know few things other than you do go directly to hell if you knock out Rick Moranis. Yeah, dude. He's a good dude. Well, I mean, he plays one of my favorite characters in Ghostbusters. Oh, yeah. The nerdy accountant. Oh man! Why, why is that so, your favorite character? Oh, dude, I think he's great. Where he's like, uh, like you know, like come in. He's giving tax advice. He's throwing Key the party because because he wants to basically you like he needs a tax deduction, so he invites his clients. I think it's just a great part, uh, and he always played a great part. There was like a uh, uh, little shop of horrors. Remember that little whole deal shop. with like with like little the Venus flytrap? Man, huh? he was always in good movies. I love this. It's Single. like nine million people in New York City, and then this asshole randomly picks out Rick Moranis. Yeah, to knock him out, uh, man. Those knockout things. Um, when I see him, I'm like, holy shit, dude! Like, first of all, the fact that people are filming a felony like that and then posting it, like, I, I'm just like, what is going on in this fucking world? And more importantly, why isn't the person that get knocked out being like, okay, let's go hunt these people down and kill them? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if cocaine had a soul, it would be these individuals that decide to do that. I don't understand how somebody thinks it like that. That is okay. And I imagine they do get hunted down. Definitely somebody's getting hunted down for that. Um, and it's just like, that's that's not even funny. That's like, you can kill someone, yep. you know? And so I think that is that is a one-star Yelp review that has come to life, people that uh, do that. Do you think it's time that actually we have a real-life Punisher? Without a doubt. Like, I love the Punisher. I, I think, think it's you. Goes, Vigilante uh, justice. Man, I finally found my calling to go be the Punisher. Drive around in like a 69... Uh, flat black uh, charger, 68 charger, and just fucking light people up and be like, oh, you punched that guy. You punched Mick Moranis. Now I get to take you. Are you the Thomas Jane Punisher or are you the Netflix series Punisher? I don't remember who played him. Uh, I like more the uh, the movie Punisher. It was a little more comic booky. Uh, yeah, the Thomas other one, Jimmy Travolta with the bad guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, uh, I, I thought that one was better. I, I tried to get into the uh, Netflix show and I just couldn't really, I don't know. It just felt very like difficult to like, get into the rhythm of watching it. Yeah. I agree. High quality versus CW. Uh, no, the CW shows are excellent. I don't know why you're so down on them. I think you got to get into them. I mean, the arrow, he's a vigilante. Is the CW like with Titans? My neighbor watches Titans and he keeps trying to get me on that. Uh, DC. Yeah. Yeah. I like the DC stuff. My kids started watching the flash. Uh, I don't know if you ever seen it, but like the The running form awful. Yeah. Well, he's real fast. So that's all that matters. Uh, but my kids started watching it. And then what they did is they integrated or integrate. That's a word. No, they. I like it. Let's make just it roll. Yeah, they Don't basically. Get hung brought, up on yeah, sorry. Words. Uh, they basically brought in all these other characters like Supergirl, the Arrow, and they brought in like all this other people of this universe. And so we we would watch this show during uh, during COVID, and then we were like, "Who are these other people?" And then the girls looked, and we have you know obviously Netflix and whatever, and uh, they were like, "Oh, there are these other shows." And now we've watched all these. 
This is a bit shit, man. I should have prepared for this superhero running breakdown. I yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we I, know I, it's terrible. Captain I, Marvel, have you seen that? She runs very uh, very stiff, very mm-hmm. stiff. Like when I watch everybody run, everybody just looks stiff, and the arm uh, action looks very forced. On the brakes, Tom Cruise is pretty impressive for who he is. Very. Oh, he's a real life superhero. Uh, he is a real life. He superhero. doesn't play a superhero. He just is. Uh, the fact that Tom Cruise goes in and he's like. I'm not going to do the movie unless I get to do all the stunts. I want you to teach me how to fly a jet. Can I can I offer you something that will make your guys' life immediately better? I mean, along the lines of CBD beard oil and that kind of better. Yeah, I'm going to ask for permission in this day and age. Yeah. I need I need permission. Sure. Okay. I mean, um, you're not going to you're not going to whip whip anything out on us, are you? No, no. I'm going to integrate something. Okay. So uh, if you uh, <laughs> we need to use that. What did time. I say? Did I say <laughs> integrate or uh, Argate, integrate? Um, you're trying to say integrated. I got yeah, you, but we're friends. So I'm just yeah. giving you a hard okay. time. Um, Shit so if happens. anybody wants to do, and I'm going to look this up, I want to fact check it. We, we have this, um, I, I don't like the term mastermind cause it just sounds very douchey, but we have this thing called the coalition. That's just for coaches and, and people that are trying Is it to a mastermind. Of like, uh, I mean, what's the definition less douchey version? <laughs> it's, it's a less douchey version. It's, it's a, it's a group. So it's a group of coaches that just kind of feel like, Hey, yeah, I, I love what so I mastermind do. Is. John, I'm going to fight you. Uh, that's going to. So anyway, we, we have like a retreat that we do at the end of like the six months of it. Just kind of, you know, because obviously this thing gets super tactical and it can get heavy. And so one night we're like, like uh, it's super late and we've had all the deep discussions we're going to have. So somebody walks out a video of every Tom Cruise clip of him running in every movie since like the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And we're watching and this is like a 20. I think it's like a 20 minute video. And you just get to see how his running evolves over time. And I had gone through a, I'm a huge hip hop guy, but I had also started listening a little bit more due to stranger things, dark synth, you know, that like kind of uh, it doesn't matter. Dark synth, look it up. It's a whole rabbit hole. I can tell you the origins of how I got into it if, if you want, but I'm like, this would go really well to dark synth. So then what we did is we decided to mute the sound of the Tom Cruise video and see how it looked up against a dark synth music background. There's no more appropriate Tom Cruise running music than dark synth. It's the kind of music you would hear if you were in like a night Rider type vehicle chasing down drug dealers on the interstate in the year 2082. Mm. And uh, yeah, it's it's like weird non-vocal music. I, I think I heard it in Halloween Horror Nights because we're huge Halloween fans at my um, in my family at Universal Studios. And then Stranger Things was like a big deal. I'm like, this is a very like unique sound. And then the weekend, the weekend, the artist kind of takes synth based stuff and that's that's what makes his music kind of sound do, so distinct. But anyway, dark synth and Tom Cruise running videos will make for a, a lethal afternoon. Hmm. Well, to check this out, Brett's playlist, Power Athlete Radio, Spotify playlist. Brett, we're going to ask you to create one. It's basically going to be all this and uh, probably a weekend song. But he what already I like got for, the best playlist. Well, what I'd like to do is is I like to see like the evolution of where you started and where you finished. So I um. Uh, my daughter and I had a, my daughter's 10 and, uh, she pulled up Spotify and wanted to know, Hey dad, what's some good music for me to listen to? So at that point I like sat down and I was like, hold on. I went and I got a drink and I was like, let's start. Like, where does all this music start? And for me, rock and roll really starts. Like I understand like the Beatles. I'm just not a huge Beatles fan, but I understand Same. position. Uh, for me, it all started Led Zeppelin. And so then we like rolled through Led Zeppelin uh, got to like Metallica and then we got to like the whole British invasion with like uh, 
uh, Bruce Dickinson and, um, you know, uh, Rob Halford and like went through all that stuff and then just went through all this kind of metal and then the death of like uh, glam rock with Nirvana and grunge and like took her through this like whole journey. And then we got into actually the beginning of rap and hip hop, which I remember Sugar Hill Gang. Yep. You know, and then and then like when I grew up and it was like uh, gangster rap with uh, NWA, Ice-T and like that stuff and went through and then kind of just went into these different genres of music and then kind of where it split. And uh, so, yeah, she sat down, took notes and we made basically made her a playlist that showed this evolution. And I was like, okay, so this is where we're starting. We're starting here and we got to end here. Now you got to try to figure out all the little branches that go off in between here and figure out what you like. And she was like, okay, I'll go. Uh, and then like, you know, I was like, but you got to listen to enough of the Beatles to appreciate them, but I'm just not a Beatles fan. Like I never on got a Beatles note. There is on Disney plus now an eight hour Peter Jackson documentary on the Beatles. So eight hours and Peter Jackson's, uh, what was the word you made up? Integrate. They integrate. They integrate. Yeah, Intergate. Um, yeah, Intergate. So I haven't watched it yet. I'm down with my dad to watch it. In He's a big Beatles fan, isn't he? Yeah. But, I mean, Stones, um, Beatles, all that generation. Uh, like, I feel Steve like Floyd. you either Beatles fans or a Stones fan. Like, I feel like it was like. You can do. No, both. weren't you a Beatles fan or a Monkees fan? Uh, I don't well, feel like the Stones I mean, compete with the Beatles. Beatles, I, Beatles took a lot of inspiration from the Monkees. Uh, That's a joke. But any. Dude, did you guys remember, like, the Monkees TV show? No, hold on. Or, me, or, me, or this or is am, a more important or point. Am I too old for you guys for the fact that I remember as a little kid seeing the monkeys come on? Hey, hey, where are the monkeys? Did you know they had a TV show? I did not know they had that. So the monkeys weren't actually a real band. They started a t- there was a TV show and then they became a band off the TV and then that's how they became actually they were put together for a TV show. Well, called anyway, the monkeys. The the Beatles in it Jackson like has 50 takes of certain songs. And then they show the creative process. And then they have just a film crew filming the band talking. And then you see Paul McCartney like working on it. And then it becomes like, let it be. So he's working on his own, interjecting into the conversation and back into the music. And then, hey, guys, we're going to try this. And then it plays. They get into the the rep. So it's like multiple different creation processes. And then you see the evolution of the Beatles as like transitioning from Lennon's band to McCartney's band yeah. and then break up. So like eight hours right in your line, right with mastery, understanding, and then music. So I, I haven't watched it. I've just listened to reviews about it, but I'm going to wait for holidays with my dad to to deep dive. But I think you'd really I like that. Yeah, that. my um, with my parents, I made them watch The Defiant Ones. And I think we talked about it maybe once on when I was on here, but The Defiant Ones was like, <clears throat> Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine yep. and it, it starts, you know, um, from both of their kind of origin stories. And then also how then Dr. Dre found Eminem and all this, and then the found, you know, how Interscope came together in aftermath and eventually how they went on to create beats by Dre. Right. But it covers, it's a cool evolution and it, it relates to strength and conditioning as well, because I, I've always looked at music as like a perfect ersatz to S and C in that, or what it should aspire to be. Jimmy Iovine started as kind of just like an intern and then became a producer and then ended up creating a label. And then he was this Dr. Dre started as a DJ, then was a rapper, then was a producer, then a label owner, then this, I I think another core issue in streaming conditioning. And and I talk about this in one of our courses is like, there's still no, uh, people don't evolve in it for a field that's obsessed with adaptations. It doesn't really adapt. 
it's like, there's so many people that they think, oh no, I can just go to college. I can go to pro or I can die on the floor in the private sector. Right. Uh, to the point where if you even become a student business or you create a brand, you're looked at as a sellout, but Jay-Z can go from a street corner to rapping to being a billionaire. And you know, that's lauded. And so I think SNC very much has an evolution problem where it doesn't really, it only identifies with like this one thing. Obviously you guys are very different, right? And there's other people out there that are different, but I'm talking about collectively as a field, you don't know many happily married, financially secure, healthy strength coaches who actually are able to retire. And that also is not throwing stones at anybody that's gone through a divorce or anything like that. Right. I'm, I'm well aware that, you know, I, I'm married right now and in 10 years that we could like things happen. My point is, is the field generally has no kind of point where like a dent, my dentist on the street was a dental hygienist, a dentist now owns his own practice. Strength and conditioning just doesn't have healthy attitudes towards evolution because it's always just idolized this kind of, no, you're a coach and you're on the floor and that's all you'll do. And it's about everybody else, but you, but inside a lot of coaches and I'll go to, I will argue this till I'm dead in the grave. Cause this is a lot of what we supported art of coaching. A lot of coaches are really broken because they get into the field in their twenties and then all their focus is on everybody else, right? As it should be, that's our job to guide, to lead, to orchestrate, but they don't also fill their own cup because they've been told that that's selfish and that's bad. And then at about 35, you're like, why am I burnt out? And why am I like this? And you know, why don't I have this? And uh, we just get a lot Where of does that narrative come from. I mean, is that, is that from the old crusty, the old guard is, it, it uh, is kind of put that in. It depends how deep you want to get into this. Like I, you know, I went down a very, very dark rabbit hole with this when I, because I, I experienced it in my own life, just the way I came up in the field. And so our online course valued is essentially about that. It's because we had so many coaches, John, that would reach out. that would be like, Hey, I'm overwhelmed. I'm burnout. I know I love what I do, but nobody sees my value. I'm tired of writing programs and being at work all the time. When a coach can basically come and say, we're skipping that we're skipping this. I've moved my family 15 times for 40 K a year. And when I did make money, I was fired after two years, even though I did what I was supposed to do in the weight room. What do we do? And so we went deep into the origins of that. And I struggle making it concise. Um, it's just, it's a combination of which part you want to tackle. The unhealthy attitude towards money is a little bit of like cognitive dissonance that old, you know, Aesop's fable, Fox and the grapes, coaches don't get paid much. Right. And so they run around. I always wanted to know why do they, why do they say, Oh, first in the first book I was ever given other than like super training and science and practice was first in last out. Right. And you hear coaches say, I'm not in it for the money. I'm the first one in, I'm the last one out. It's not about me. What we found is this is a form of, and Irving Goffman gets the credit for this impression management. It was coaches trying to create a differentiating factor through what's called an exemplification impression management tactic, meaning they want to make themselves look better by appealing to moral virtue. Mm. And that actually has, and there's research to support this, that actually has its foundations in the education world. Substitute teachers who are trying to get jobs, but they, you know, school districts maybe weren't hiring. They would always just be like, hey, if there's an opportunity, I'll do it for less and all this stuff. And Irving Goffman wrote about it in the 50s. So, you know, other examples of this will be, so exemplification uh, will be appealing to moral, moral virtue. Of course, we all know uh, intimidation. Then there's supplication. Another thing you see in the field a lot, supplication is when, uh, imagine people say, take um, self-deprecation too far. So you ever know somebody that's really smart, but they always are like, oh, I'm the dumbest guy in the room. Oh, I don't know much. Or, oh, I just have a simple West Virginia education, right? They just kind of downplay themselves all the time. 
And to a point, it's humility to beyond a point, you're kind of like, all right, dude. So there's five different major impression management tactics that people will utilize uh, to create differentiation for themselves. So you have a field that by and large isn't exposed to economics, to business practices. There's not a lot of great examples of coaches that came in and adhered to sound practices, went on and kind of, you know, evolved into different lifestyles. And if there was, it wasn't something celebrated. You could look at the Mark Verstegans or the Mike Boyles or other coaches that have done that and created a lifestyle, but somebody's always got something to say about it. And so the, the, the simple answer is when you take people who by and large, many of us were uh, with the exception of you, John, average to slightly above average athletes who found security and confidence in the weight room right? And we're highly competitive either with ourselves or others. And you channel that into a profession, right? Like when you make a hobby into what you do and that hobby was a way for you to get confidence and an edge, people are kind of channeling that competitive edge the wrong way. And they, they don't understand differentiation. So you go into a, you go into it's marketing 101, you go into a Kroger or anything like that. There's bottled water, carbonated water, oxygenated water, alkaline water, all this, but it's all water right? It's all water. Strength coaches have become all water. Oh, I'm the Olympic guy. Oh, I'm this guy. I'm the speed guy. I'm the agility guy. Well, really what, what, what a lot of them are is like the, the average public doesn't really understand what all this means to the extent that we do. And because of that, and it's not understood, people just want to argue over it. And then they just want to shout, we're the best, we're this. So yeah, I mean, there's many things that lead to it, but it's deeply rooted in uh, failed attempts to differentiate, not a lot of self-awareness, Hyper competitiveness, anxiety, and then also, fact, frankly, no true way to evaluate the field. And this is the last thing I'll say on it. Uh, is there a place that you guys love in Austin that is like it's one of your favorite restaurants? Is there a place that you just love? Terry Black's Barbecue. Yeah, I like Terry Black's. I like okay, that Valentina's. Is is it reasonable to think that there's some people that think those places suck? It's not sure. their favorite, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, look at Yelp reviews. Sure. Just like, you know, you can have a farm to table uh, place out here that people love and then other people hate it. And somebody might like a crap restaurant because it's where I met, they met their wife or anything like that. Or sure. research we talk about in Valued. Some of the top rated law firms in the country were evaluated. One, one company that pays this, this firm $500 million in annual retainer is like, they don't win every case, but they answer the phone. So value is subjective. Value is subjective. Sure. So when I came up, it was all these arguments in these forums and on Facebook we need a way to be evaluated. You know, we need a way. Well, you couldn't even agree on who's going to evaluate you, let alone what you're going to be evaluated on, what the best coaches are the only ones that can teach flawless weightlifting technique. And this leads to why we created Art of Coaching. We started deep diving into coach development and what expert coaching is really perceived as. And there's this really great article written by, um, let me pull this up. There's this really, really, really great article written by uh, Andy Abraham, Bob Muir, um, uh, Dave Collins, and there's many others like this by Paul Potrack. And it just talks about what, what underpins the development of an expert coach. And Robin Jones and folks talk about, well, listen, coaching by itself is a social practice. So to try to evaluate an expert coach based on technical expertise is not good enough because it's a social practice between social beings in a social environment. And so we know that communication's at the core of it. So you already have this ambiguous field of like, how do you evaluate it? Because you can teach you can choose all the right exercises, teach them extraordinarily well, team might still not win, right? So again, value is objective. There's no clean way to evaluate. But then you have uh, what I found in the research is nobody was evaluating the social side of that. 
And I'm not talking about verbal and nonverbal. I'm talking about really what are the underpinnings of true interpersonal skills? What are the meta categories? And we found that there was nothing exclusively that focused on that. So to try to reduce the subjectivity of, um, of value and what is a great coaching, which is underpinned by great communication, that that's the gap we wanted to hit. So that's a huge part of it too, is when you don't have an objective way to evaluate yourself, people are going to start arguing, pointing fingers and using their insecurity to just get louder voices to all to try to appear like they're the expert in the room because no key metric speaks for them. Does that make sense? Yeah. It, uh, it, it reminds me of a statement that I coined years ago uh, when playing for the Eagles in the absence of true leadership, false prophets appear. I love that. Yep. And uh, it's true. I mean, like, uh, you know, like if, if there's no meaningful way for people to evaluate, know whether or not they're doing a good job. It just looks like false prophets. And uh, we used to see that all the time. Like all of a sudden, you know, people that like, uh, you know, the leaders decide not to lead. And then all of a sudden you have a whole bunch of people just spouting off, making fucking preposterous claims. And I always remember being like, fucking false prophets, dude. <laughs> like, like, uh, uh, and that was, uh, an interesting point for me as a young guy when I realized that a lot of times too, uh, people equate age and experience with leadership. And I realized that leadership a lot of times is just the motherfucker that wants to grab the wheel and the person that's enough of an individual and enough of a, like a dynamic personality does their job in such a way that people want to follow that individual in line with that in sports the position. You are the quarterback. You are the leader. Yeah, but uh, like I played with with quarterbacks that weren't great leaders. I, I, yes, and you know, and people always look to those individuals. But at the end of the day, um, you know, and there's a whole bunch of different leadership styles. I mean, there's a guy who's just kind of like keeps your head down and is the the fucking mule that just keeps pushing and pushing, pushing. You know, the consistent guy. There's a rah rah guy, and uh, I just absence of true leadership, man. False prophets appear, and you can't win in the NFL or really just in any sport unless you have some form of leadership. And, uh, you know, that's why, you know, you look at the teams that are successful, especially late in the season when you start looking in the NFL for like in that Q4, the teams that have really good leadership and more importantly, like uh, they know who they are, are the ones that end up getting a chance to go to the Super Bowl. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I think it's something that definitely separates you guys. And it was nice having Tex at one of our events. What was it? Two years ago, Tex? But um, yeah, June or July 2020. What I mean is like you guys enjoy getting into the weeds and you're socially astute and you're technically skilled, right? That to me is the bedrock of, of expert coaching. And so like to give you an example of one of the articles to get nerdy for a second, there's this great one, which really when we were looking at, Hey, we want to validate uh, improv is such a unique tool that's being used in the medical field and so many other fields. And it's got interesting roots in social work where, you know, people think improv as like comedy, but really, you know, improv is just decision-making and problem solving that's ad hoc, right? It's using available resources to solve problems. And so there, there, there were these two women, Neva Boyd and Viola Spolin. And really what, during like the new deal and when the great depression was going on, improv was used to teach immigrant children how to assimilate into American culture. Cause it was kind of this flattening hierarchical way of saying, Hey, if you don't speak that great of English, or you're kind of like, awkward because you're an immigrant. That's okay. We're going to use adapted theater games. So everybody kind of has to find their way out of this hole. And I know that in like 2014, and then I'll get to the article, you know, I was kind of getting burnout in the sense that like, I, I love coaching, right? I wasn't getting burnout on that, but it felt like things were getting a little bit too easy from the standpoint of like, 
if we needed to do an acceleration session, we always had sleds and we had, uh, you, you know, everything you needed from a plyometric standpoint, med balls, we had all this stuff. So an intern had come up to me and was like, what do you want for the acceleration session this morning with the NFL guys? And I just wanted more of a challenge for myself. This was all about self-competition. This wasn't about dick measuring. This wasn't anything else. Like I'm, I'm very self-competitive. And I said, you know what, man, like pick one tool, pick one tool. And in truth, if I can't show you how to run an acceleration session with one tool and more importantly, something that I could actually validate or explain to a judge if I had to, then I'm not really good at my job. And so he was like, all right. And he had picked a med ball. So we did that. And I started doing this more and more. I started just finding ways to bring similar constraints that I would bring into agility sessions or things like that with athletes into my coaching. So like social constraints, uh, another example, and I talked about it, the apprenticeship is an adapted theater game called Last Letter First. So the idea is I'd say something, and if I said good morning, the last letter there is G, right? Or sorry, if somebody said good morning to me, I would have to respond in a relevant way with a word or a phrase that started in G. So I, I always use the example of an athlete where I said, hey, man, how do you feel today? And this guy was like, sore. Well, that ends in an E. So I'd say everywhere. And he's like, my shoulder that starts, ends in an R really, have you tried this? And that was an example of me just, hey, listen more closely, try to challenge yourself. So as we got into the research, we, we found this article that was talking about how like sociology has been in scant service when you analyze what makes an expert coach and that needs to change. And there was a gentleman named Pierre Bordeaux. And without going into that background, right? Like he kind of just said, hey, you know, the coaching process and coaching practice itself is a form of regulated improvisation. And this was from a 1977 article he had. And what he meant by that is the practice is neither objectively determined, but it's also not the unbridled product of free will. Like, of course, we have this idea of where we're going, but you have to adapt it. Um, but you didn't have any things that taught this to coaches. You just, you just did it. It's not at workshops. It's not at this. And it turns out there's been this call to arms in the sport coaching realm for, for decades now. And nobody's really created, of course, people have done certain things, but nobody's created something that's been kind of universally adopted. And so we said, I mean, let, let's do this. And it became like the manifestation of our doctorate. But I mean, that is the one thing that it's still subjective, right, John? Like communication can be subjective, but we at least need to have, there are objective ways to know uh, what are the ramifications of you know, if somebody uses this tone of voice or if somebody uses this kind of influence tactic or if somebody frames something in this way and anchors it or uses these analogies versus this kind of explanation, it's so much deeper than cueing. And there's so many odd things that influence us in life, color, design, music, because perception is is really what colors our world. And um, so, yeah, anyway, like I just think that that's something that's interesting and, and that goes back to hip hop right? That, that is expert use of language if it's an actual true hip hop artist. And I, I just think it's a rabbit hole. We can't really help but continue to go down because what's the other, what's the alternative? What's the alternative? We just continue to argue about exercises and teach coaches exercises. It's yes. And yes, they have to do that. But anything that separates you at the highest level, if you, me and Tex are competing for a job and we're all good at teaching the clean and the deadlift and all these things, I mean, a core separator is going to be our interpersonal skills and our conceptual problem solving. So, well, that and also how well you identify with the individual, and more importantly, how quick you make bridges. Uh, as I was listening to you speak, I started doing like the Rolodex of all the coaches I've worked with. And the one thing that I always found the biggest put off was when there was a lot of like angst or more like, 
just anger at the position and how they were doing that just seeped through into the coaching. And it just felt very bitter. And I dealt with a lot of coaches that were just either unhappy, felt they were underappreciated, and didn't have the ability to, like, you know, table that aspect. And it just seeped out into the coaching and just felt very, like, just fucking toxic. And uh, have you ever felt under, like, even you guys being in a service industry and being coach? And, you know, I hope you can be, you feel like you can be candid here because there's so many people that look up to you guys. But this is a genuine question. I mean, have you guys even, uh, at, not and not as a player, John, but as a coach or even as a service provider now. Like, what what makes you, if anything, feel underappreciated as a coach? Like, what kind of behaviors make you feel underappreciated? Uh, if if I, you ever do, uh, for me, I mean, not really. Uh, I know. Well, um, I appreciate the minutia of things. Like, I want to hear the long story. Like, if there's a like, you know, I hate when we start talking. People are like, oh, you know, uh, I'll give you the abbreviated version. I'm like, no, no, no. I like the depth. I like to know like all the layers. I want to hear the the beginning and the after. I yeah, I want to hear like the uh you know the hero's journey, one love, you know, lo- or uh uh love lost, love one. I mean, I, I want to know just about everything. And so because I'm like that, um, it gets a little frustrating sometimes where people are just so superficial and everything. You know, like let's say it's on our programs or some of the stuff. I had a guy hit me up with uh, you know, you know, well, why do we do it this way? And it was just kind of a, like a rude like very curt, but then I have to remember it's the internet. So then I write a long dissertation on exactly what's going through my mind and like wrote, I'd like, it was like three paragraphs and the guy's like, Oh, I knew it was something like that. Okay. Great program. Thanks. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it was like, uh, you know, we got into like uh, post activation potentiation and why this and movement quality and, you know, having tens of thousands of data points and literally looked at thousands of videos that the movement quality increases when we do this. And so this is why this is strung together and just kind of like went through all this arrangement and why we do it this way based on this, you know, economy of time, economy of movement, economy of uh, volume. And I uh, just got into all these things. And I think the dude was probably like, I was just asking a simple question in this dude. And it's because if you're going to ask me a question, I'm going to give you as deep as I can go, whether or not you want it or not, like don't raise your hand unless you want the answer. So I think in that piece, um, I also have to remember sometimes that not everybody geeks out on this stuff the way we do, or that somebody has as much experience. So a lot of times, like if somebody's asking a question, it's not necessarily in a combative way. Whereas when we started teaching the original seminar, when we were working with CrossFit and I went out and I started teaching it, people would ask questions in literally combative ways. Like, Hey, so what, you know, why this? Because mm-hmm. they wanted to battle us. So I got kind of in used to this thing where, uh, you know, as I would get up and present, let's say I had a 45 minute, an hour talk. If somebody raised their hand, I would stop and I would answer their question before when I was young in it, I'd be like, Hey, save all your questions at the end. And I'll answer it. And then I got to the point where somebody raised their hand, I would stop and fucking curb stomp them and then get right back into what I was doing. And I think, uh, that little bit of like dealing with those people, but then after, we had done it for so long. We stopped getting those people and the people that were showing up were already bought in and were there for the experience. You so, made a really good point on that one. If I can interject, intergate, I'm going to intergate uh, because I've been guilty sometimes of when I've come on this show, like when I'm so passionate about the movement that we were trying to create of, I still geek out over the training stuff. I still, you know, I straight, I, and, but like, it seemed crazy to me that there were some coaches that took the communication and the social side for granted, just because communication can start wars in marriages. You know, it can do all these awful things. And most people that think they're already good at it are the ones that need it the most. And there used to be times and probably still are where I'm so passionate about that. I would catch myself rambling as if trying to like go at the people that still don't believe it. 
And it was just, it was kind of dumb. It was well-intentioned, but dumb because, you know, you're, you're not going to convince those people, right? Even the people that are even semi-interested or not interested in this stuff at all, they're not even going to listen to this episode once they see my name on it. And so I had to learn how to just talk more to the people that are already bought into it, the people that are committed, the people that are doing it. And it really increased the quality of my life because then you didn't always have this battle rap mentality where in my brain, I'm always hearing the devil's advocate view. Like I remember when my book came out and somebody posted on Twitter, you know, oh great, a book on how to communicate as if I don't do that every day in my life. And I'm like, bro, like everybody communicate, right? Like who thinks like, if you do something every day, isn't the idea of mastery that you continue to refine it? We're all apprentices in a craft where you never master. And if anybody thinks they're an expert in communication, the, the, the question that then trips them up is like, okay, then how are you evaluating that? You know, and we asked that as part of the doctorate, like the semi-structured interviews, I'd say, how would you rank yourself as a communicator? One to 10, 10 being extremely strong, one being, you know, not very strong. And somebody would say, you know, oh, seven, eight. And I'd be like, great. What tool did you use to either objectively or subjectively evaluate that? Well, and you nine- should just ask them their, their marriage status. If I want to know if somebody's good, no, it's true. If I want to know somebody's level of communication, I'll ask them their, uh, their marriage status. Because but what if they just haven't found the one yet? Eh, maybe they're lazy. Who knows? Maybe the right girl hasn't come along. But I know a lot of times uh, as I would listen to people and they would you know, want to talk about communication in this, I mean, as you know, you're married. Uh, there's a lot of communication and there's you know, sometimes, uh, hey, I'm sorry. Like if something's going on, I usually just apologize just to get out of the way. I'm like... I don't know what I did, but I'm sorry if I did it. So now, now can we talk about it? I mean, I think you <laughs> learn how to navigate these so the the circles. And a lot of times, uh, you know, uh, if I want to know what kind of communicator, or more importantly, if somebody understands how to, you know, how to work within a structure, uh, usually marriage status is usually a pretty good one. Does your wife hate you? Can I call your wife and ask if she likes you or not? Because <laughs> if I call her and she tells me you hate you, there's a good chance that you're full of shit and you don't know how to communicate. Yeah, unless somebody's married to a poor communicator themselves, right? Like, because then it's, uh, yeah, that person, that person's wife or husband might not like them. And one's just better at self-disclosure and communicating and the other one's more, I mean, I have a friend like that. He's an excellent communicator. His wife's a miserable communicator and it makes stuff so much harder on him. And by default, she holds, I would say, and she's, you know, like resentment and it's like, yo, like you're the one that like, doesn't work on that, but either neither here nor there. Like the question we, the answer we got by one of them and he laughed at this later. Right. So we knew this was absurd and he was like, oh my God, it kind of woke him up to it. I go, so what ways have you evaluated yourself? And he's like, really nothing. He goes, in the past, I've gauged if I'm a good communicator, did people do what I told them to do? And then we had a really interesting discussion about the difference between compliance and commitment. Because just because somebody did what you told them to do is not a byproduct of great communication. Right? There's many reasons people do partake in a particular behavior and, and they're not always doing it of their own free will and accord. Compliance is, if John, if you ask me to do something, and let's say um, I feel good about you, John, and I do, right? If you ask me to do something like I'm a friend, I consider you a friend, I'd do yep. it. But let's say you ask me to do something kind of like shady and whatever, I, I and I do it, I might do it. That's more compliance. It's like, all right, I like John, this task I'm a little iffy on. Or it could be the other way. It's just an asymmetry between what you call the relation and task quotient. How you feel yeah, about the person but, and the, hold on, hold on, just let me finish for a sec. Okay. Commitment is if you ask me to do something and I'm all the way bought in on you and what you're asking me to do and the bigger purpose of it. So, you know, all I'm saying here is saying that you're an excellent communicator solely because somebody does what you ask them to do 
is not a good metric because that goes into power dynamics. What kind of power do you hold over them? You know, what, what's their, there's many other reasons somebody decides to follow through with a behavior and that by itself can't be, Oh yeah, no, it's, you're definitely a communicator. If everybody does what you tell them to do all the time, that's, that's just not a metric. No, I dude, I can't agree more. Uh, and it's I think, creepy to think, I mean, ugh, well, like, think uh, about I mean, Weinstein S kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, the stories that came out about like him, for example, and how he lorded over these women and like these women kept these secrets because of their career. Like I was reading about like Soma Hyatt, uh, that he attacked her and she basically oh, he got kept, her too. Yeah. And she kept her mouth shut, uh, and didn't tell anybody. And then it was only when it came out. And I guess like I, I, I saw, I was an interview with, um, you know, like, um, so I've been doing, uh, hyperbarics. So, uh, I go at seven in the morning and I do like, you know, it's basically ni- uh, 15 minutes up or down 15 minutes up. So it's 90 minutes in this tube. And so like, I'll sit there and I'll watch some, I don't know, whatever pops up on Facebook, uh, videos, but there was something like an interview about that Harvey Weinstein. Cause I was reading something on, uh, um, what's the, uh, Jeff Epstein's girlfriend trial. And then the, you know, the, the Weinstein. Oh yeah. She goes to trial this month. Well, yeah, she, she's in trial right now. And so they won't let the cameras in, so they're doing sketches, uh, which is really wild, and they're redacting everything, which I think, uh, unlike what we saw with the Kyle Rittenhouse thing, where they had every camera in the room and this, and the, like they are doing, there's like three sketch artists that are allowing there, and everything is redacted because I think what they're so scared of is that they're going to out somebody. Like Prince Andrew was, you know, a pedophile or something, I mean, just something where you're like, holy shit, like now we have huge problems. So I think they're really controlling the information, but it got into this Weinstein deal and it was talking about like the women that he attacked and of course, but yeah, like the Selma Hyatt thing, I was like, didn't know he was. And then they went through all the women and how he used it and manipulated it and the way it went. And I'm like, what a fucking piece of shit is a human. Oh man. Well, how about the Theranos stuff too? That's another thing where I I don't think they're allowing cameras in and it's all sketches and Elizabeth Holmes and all you you guys, have you, have you read about this at all? No, what is this? So Theranos, essentially, in a nutshell, this woman had started a company that- uh, Oh, with the blood. Yeah, drop of blood. Oh, yeah, from, yeah. I no, can do. Dude, yeah. And so th- this was a documentary. I, I think I watched it a year ago uh, on a plane- and you just got into it and it was just, you know, she, I think she went to, she had gone to Stanford. Theranos yeah. was like a privately held company. Right. And they were promising raise like half a billion dollars in BC. Oh money? yeah. And not only that, right. She had like Henry Kissinger and who's yeah. who, I mean, the people on the board didn't make sense, but it, it was when you, when you start studying her, this was an incredibly persuasive woman who probably knew that the op, if she got a lot of well-known household names on a board, that people were going to not have as many questions, despite the fact many of them came out. I mean, it, it might've been one of the five-star generals that was on there. Maybe it was Mattis or something like that. That was like, I had to buy a book uh, on like how to be a board member. I think it was Petraeus. What? Wasn't it Petraeus? Yeah. I don't know. I'd have to look yeah. it up. Right. Yeah. And, but like, I know this, the idea was for anybody listening that doesn't know, they devised blood tests that required only a small amount of blood and could be performed. Like right. Rapidly yeah. using these automated devices, but these claims were proven to be false. They, they raised more than $700 million for venture capital. Obviously I've, I've gone down in this rabbit hole a lot. And um, I mean, they were just lab assistants being like blood was getting splattered everywhere. The machines weren't working. She did the whole black turtleneck, Steve jobs thing. And she had another guy that was an early investor. Uh, I can't remember in a massive company. I think his name was Sonny Balwani and they were dating, but now all of a sudden, like just seeing how people manipulate this. And of course, all this is alleged, right? It's alleged fraud. Um, but like they were dating, they released all these texts and now she's saying, no, he assaulted me and he's the one that crafted me into this. And then, but they're just doing sketches. They're not, they're not showing you much because there's a lot of high profile people involved in this. uh, 
uh, when we were still out in California, except about four years ago, five years ago, uh, Kyle Turley hit me up. Um, you know, he had a CBD company. I was a small investor in, and we had to go to this meeting with um, these big VC dudes that was in Palm Springs. So we went to this big high rise in Palm Springs, met with these guys that were, you know, I mean, fucking big money dudes. And they were interested in, you know, putting money. And the guy who was the, the main money behind it uh, had invested millions of dollars in it and was bragging to me about how, about this company and was like, you know, these are the type of deals I'm involved in and threw that one out. And I was like, oh, you know, cause I had heard about it. And I was like, oh man. And he had put a huge chunk of money. There knows, in. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. That yeah. Went out? Cool. yeah. And he had put a huge chunk of money into it and, uh, you know, was bragging about it. And this, this would have to be at least five, maybe five plus six years ago. And, uh, and so I, I wrote the name down and went back and researched it. I'm like, first of all, uh, I think I hit up Dr. Tom and was like, what do you think on this? And he's like, that technology's not there. And he goes, and they're going to put those machines in CBS and they're going to put them everywhere. I mean, the idea yeah, is that up. you could walk into any pharmacy and with one drop of blood on your finger, like you're doing a, um, like a, a glucose test, you know, like, you know, like a, a like a diabetic would do. A John Wick thumbprint on the mark. Yeah. And you could have like this endless amount of blood history. So you, and it was cheap and this, and I remember Dr. Tom being like, I'm just telling you, I'm like, uh, I'm the head. I mean, like, I'm so far into this blood testing thing, and I know that that technology does not exist. And I was like, well, I just talked to some dude who's got millions of dollars in it, and he's like, well, that's no good. But well, just to show, I mean, up. anybody's capable, like, right? Even us, we're all capable of being duped, and yeah. uh, it's it's, and that goes into the subjectivity of human perception as well. And especially if you start looking around the false consensus bias, and you're like, well, Henry Kissinger's in here, and Mattis or Petraeus or whoever else is in here, and five Stanford people are in here. Looks good. And, uh, you know, it's just a fallacy of experts. You know, every single one of us can be made. And and I think that's why it's important, too. And you guys do an excellent job of this on your podcast. You always have of just being like, listen, we reserve the right to be wrong. Right. Things that we're all going to say that we're like, I mean, but that's that's again, that's the man in the arena. That's the cost you pay to just like I'd rather be somebody that states views and, you know, you're you're fallible just like anybody else than just sitting on the sideline and not standing for anything, not saying anything. And we could even get into a political discussion about that, of why it's so weird, like why it's so weird that like, you're never just going to have a quote unquote normal person run for president because it's like who amongst us is ever right all the time. Doesn't have some skeletons in our closet closet or somebody, somebody has got a text that they sent to a friend in context of something else. Text definitely has sent a lot of nudes that Dropbox is not even two-factor authentication. So Texas nudes are going to come out any day now. But well, you know what, Texas? If you had nudes that came out, I'd still vote for you over some guy about, that's got like... Think about the narcissistic, uh, like the narcissistic nature and like the you know narcissistic personality qualities that would require you to want to do that job. I oh, mean, yeah. like I like there's uh, like just looking at like the aging of presidents. The only guy that actually kind of uh, looked like he got younger was Trump. I think uh, just goes to show you what a sociopath he is in so many different ways that like he somehow thrived like his lifeblood was that level of like confusion, battle, fight. I mean, the guy probably popped out of bed every morning to fight a war with everybody on media and this. I mean, 2 a.m. Twitter. Uh, like I just also like text. Uh, yeah. But I, I, I think there's certain people that flourish in like muddy water. Uh, Greg Glassman, for example, was just like that, like the muddier the water, the bigger the conflict. The bigger really? the fight, the more he fucking like like the fact that he got ousted out of CrossFit and is and has been marginalized is probably the slowest death or quickest death that we could ever hope for for him. What's uh, he doing now? Nobody fucking knows. I think he's writing a tell-all book, is what I heard on CrossFit. But you know what? Like, eh, okay, so what? 
but it's it's pretty wild to see a guy like Trump because that's where I think he strived. I mean, look at look it, it aged Obama in dog years. I mean, Obama coming in versus leaving. I mean, just the amount of time and like just stress associated with that job. I mean, it takes a very very fit, uh, intellectually intelligent and fucking high motored individual to to even be able to to do that job. I mean, I think they need an age cap on it. Like, there should be no eighty year old man fucking wheeling around doing that job. Well, I mean, even think about just being in any level of uh, imagine you're the guy behind the guy and guy being an inclusive term behind the guy, behind the guy that's writing the bills, writing this. Imagine all the people that have stayed up till 3 a.m. on pots of coffee, writing 300 page bills that they swore was going to make some change. And the next day they go to drop it off on the senator's office or whatever. And somebody's like, yeah, man, I got the call from so-and-so last night. This is all done now. And you're like, just remember that time where you went through college and you got this paper done on time. Or right now I'm trying to it was the dumbest decision I've ever made or one of them to try to do my doctorate. I can't imagine the euphoria I'll feel when I'm just like F this. And, and I'm only doing it not so people can call me like, Oh, Dr. Brett, we're doing it because we're validating the methods that we're using at our workshops. And it just makes sense based on prior work and what was there. But anyway, like the euphoria of that, imagine these people who have done this massive thing that they think is going to change the country, change the world, change lives. And they're like, Meh. just imagine how many reams of paper. I mean, that that is a job. Politics is by and large to a degree, to a degree. And I think the discerning listener knows what I mean, that you almost get into knowing you're not going to create a change. And I'm of course not saying that's everybody, but for every person that makes it through all this stuff, creates the change they wanted. There are millions of other people that wrote bills, wrote this, ghost wrote that, tried to do this, lobbied for this, filibustered that, and just nothing changed except they got older to your point right? Their telomeres got shortened and they did. Yeah, no. Well, I mean, and, and ju- just the stress, I mean, like the stress associated with it and the interesting optics of like good guy and bad guy, but yet behind closed doors, everybody's buddies. So like there's this public perception of this person and this, but like, uh, you know, you go to dinner in DC and you see all these people sitting at the same table. So, I mean, there's a lot of interesting like perception versus reality of what's going on, like the public, what they say, the way they act in terms of the cameras, but what really goes on behind closed doors. So I think the issue is that, uh, you know, because we're so far removed from it, I mean, you know, if your uh, only optic into politics is what you see on social media, you are not only are you fucking removed, you're like you couldn't be farther on Mars. And then you see how polarized people are. Like, uh, um, you know, I gauge old, what, what is it? Uh, um, believe none of what you hear and half of what you see. I mean, <laughs> that's the way I view all of this stuff. And I'm amazed that people get so polarized on just these minute things that are being fed to them within these different social media streams that you don't even know how accurate they are. Uh, <laughs> uh, I did a, I spoke at a conference on national security for uh, the War College up in Pennsylvania. And um, the, in one of the talks, they were talking about, um, there was like a right wing christian political movement and of like they were uh like of all the i think it was 90 percent of the pages that run this kind of ideology on facebook are uh, operated and run by russian bot farms so there's is it, is it hard to right, believe right-wing conservatives you know on facebook 90 percent of the groups associated with that are, are literally run managed and the information is gener- uh, generated and pushed out by russian bots I want so to hear like, Texas thoughts. I don't I, text weigh in. Where you at, Tex? I'm currently looking at the origin of believe nothing what you hear and half of what you see. Uh, that should and, be Mark Twain, right? Mm, was it close? They were American. It was either Benjamin Franklin or Edgar Allan Poe. Oh, I thought that was a 
I'll take either one of those. Let's debate this. Could you make an argument that that is in some way related to the phrase, buy the rumor, sell the news? Is that Ben Franklin? Uh, I don't know who started that. I think that was uh, Wall Street bets on the Reddit thing. I'm just kidding. Uh, I don't know. Let's see. But it's all related to like when people, even like crypto and everything that, you know, right now is like people will say like rumors always have an effect on a security or an asset's price and news can have the opposite effect. So if you hear, oh, so-and-so is going to release this, right? The stock price or the value Blue of it might go up. Blue Horseshoe loves Anacot Steel. That's what? All Blue Horseshoe loves Anacot Steel. What is that? Wall Street. Wall Street. You don't remember when he calls up and he he, he calls the uh, uh, the guy who's like in charge, of like the Wall Street paper, and he just calls up and he's like, "Hello." He's like, "Blue Horseshoe loves Anacot Steel," and then that's what blows him up in, in Wall Street. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. Uh, prime example. Michael Michael Douglas is so awesome. But, oh, it's a great movie. Yeah. Yep. No, I think that's huge. I think that you know, yeah. Uh, there are so many rabbit holes we could go down in that one. I want to hear what's on Texas mind. Tex, you've been kind of uniquely quiet. What's going, if I actually could see inside your head right now, what, what does that look like text? Like what thoughts go through your head? Like in the last, it's like a midget riding a tricycle when John speaking, (laughs) you ever seen the Simpsons clip where they like show inside Homer's faint and it's like some like black and white cow dancing or something (laughs) or playing a violin. It's like a, uh, it's, it's like a monkey riding a tricycle. And, um, the only problem is there's like a, like a, uh, a black and white TV that keeps cutting out of my voice being like text. Time to shine in. Yeah, uh, look this up. I always uh, think, uh, do you guys awkward remember transition? Do you remember Black Sheep? Oh, of course. Right. Uh, you think mean of, the movie? Uh, yeah, yeah, the movie. Where, okay. <laughs> you know, the guy, uh, Will, um, Chris Farley calls it. He goes, you know, hey, every guy's got a dream. Am I right? Between you, me, and the wall here, I had a doozy of one myself last night. Get this, a corn-fed harvest mouse, a hooker, a nun, a Flemish peasant woman, whips, chains, whistles, yo-yos, a circus midget, my grandmother on a tricycle giving me the finger, and a duck. And then he goes, oh, my Lord, I'm sorry, honey. Could you get your daddy on the phone? Uh, That's what goes through. Dude, as soon as you said black sheep. Did, uh, yeah, that's <laughs> Did you know that, that there was a TV show back when we were kids? It was called The Black Sheep Squadron. Did you ever see that? No. That's that, that's what I thought you were talking about. And I'm like, no, but I like Black Sheep better. Oh, yeah. yeah I'll tell you my, my favorite of all time movie or show trope is like when we cut into the scene and we only see the punchline and people laughing. Like in Dumb and Dumber, like he's uh, envisioning his future with Mary Swanson. And he's like in this turtleneck sweater. And he's like... uh He's like, well, do you love me? No, but that's a big chainsaw. Ah, and they all burst into laughing. It's yeah. like, what was that lead up? I got no oh, idea. Yeah. But uh, I just love that in any sort of movie. If you have that, like in that black sheep, like I'm fucking dead. I saw a, uh, it was Howard Stern interviewing um, David Spade. And he basically is like, if Farley hadn't died, do you think he would have had a better career? He's like, you guys could have done this comedy skit forever. You could have been like Bruce Willis doing terrible movies. You guys could have literally done this skit for the next 50 years. And he's like, yeah, I think about that all the time when I get pitched these awful movies. He goes, I wonder if Farley was alive, if I would still be getting, if I'd actually get good stuff. And it was like, then they both just kind of paused and they were like, and then they went on. And I was like, oh, God damn it. That was fucking rough, man. It's made still on fire. Dude, he's still yeah, I, I love it. He's my, he's my favorite follow on Instagram. Yeah. Uh, here's a hot take. 
if Tupac was alive, would people like Drake be rapping? You know, I mean, just for me personally, in, in the age in which I grew up, it was like there was Tupac and there was Biggie. And like the lineage for that was like the gangster rap and then the East Coast, West Coast stuff. And like then all of a sudden, Dr. Dre, I mean, that too, like this is terrible, but I still probably listen to more Tupac than I do to anything else. Uh, no, I, I don't think that's terrible at all. Oh. I listen to more Tupac, Eminem, 50 Cent, yeah. Dre, all that, DMX, way Dude. more than any. And I have a pulse on the other things, right? Like I like Kendrick. Uh, you know, but I, I never really got into Jay Cole, not because I don't like him as a lyricist, but like just the acoustics of his voice, superficial, right? Uh, the voice doesn't do it for me. Like, no. but yeah, I mean, I'm way more of like that school, the competitive yeah. kind of hip hop than the club hip hop. Uh, you know, the, uh, my, my daughter's pulled up, uh, what was it, uh, Megan Thee Stallion? And I was like, uh, I just find it lackluster. I think there's better stuff. And um, if we're going to listen to rap in the car, we're either going to listen to Tupac or something that's Eminem, Dr. Dre, kind of in that era. I mean, yeah. at, at the end of the day, like, I think Eminem is probably the most scary dude within that game because he just shreds people. Yeah. And uh, it's great. And he just shells people. And then the fucking best part is people try to fuck with him. And he's like, no, you don't want any of this. And then he fucking murders them. Well, and it's it's worse when you people weigh in on that, John, when they don't even know how to listen to hip hop. They're like, well this song was better by so-and-so I go, yo, do you even know how many syllables and all the things that he just hit within that and the complexity, you know, of the rhyme scheme? I mean, there, there are things when people don't know how to listen to hip hop and they don't hear like the syllable sound combined, know like what, like they're, they're either not even listening to the words, they're listening to the beats or they're not understanding how the word, there's a great YouTube. If somebody looks up the YouTube, it's like why Eminem's the best rapper alive. And this guy goes through the rhyme scheme, yep. right. Of, of how he does these things. And, um, uh, I'm going to, hold on. I got to share this lyric. There's this one that, uh, offended, um, it, they go through the rhyme scheme and in one of them, and this isn't going to be the song. He literally rhymes every word in each of the sentences with every part of it. You just got to watch it. Cause the guy will, He'll break it down. But even hearing something like this, there's this song on the revival album that got panned. And uh, let's see, where is this? Da, 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 da. Hold on. Minimum wage. I'm going to find this and it's crazy. But like, I hate when people weigh in on who's the best. And it's like, dude, you don't, you don't know how to like, listen, you don't know how to listen to these lyrics. And so here it is. Da, 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 da. Nobody likes me. Eight year old wordplay. Huh? All right, we're almost there. We're getting we're getting a rap thing, and you're like, yeah, damn right you are. All right. So he says, uh, now my dough's a mountain to a mountain, it's rise too high to count it. Never asked to be rich. All I wish was that I had a dime for every time I was doubted. So even looking at that, right? Uh it rise too high to count it. I wish I had a dime for every time I was doubted. And then he goes, but then I think about it and I'm enraged. Cause I just figured out if I was paid for the time I put for the time I spent to put the, the pen, the pen to the page, it'd be minimum wage. And then he goes rapid fire and he goes, but it's embedded in my head. I never hunted for the bread and butter. What I wanted was to be the one that they were scared of, but I'm never going to get credit for the sweat and blood. But it and blood with bread and butter and scared of, butt and harder than never. Cause and it's like, yo, like you have to live. And that's again, I think what made me fall in love initially with strength and conditioning is like, 
just being able to feel like I could give somebody the simplest program and they could be like, all right, dude, like RDL paired with this and that, that doesn't look hard. And you're like, yeah, cause you don't understand. But once you're in set four and these exercises that look really simple are just combined together, the metabolic effect when they're done, right. will like, it's just, it's the beauty and simplicity. And then that's also right. You talked about the hero's journey. My thing with communication was in a hospital coach and isn't the equipment, but they're not Dan Paff and I would talk about this. They're not watching the coaching. So they're like, how do you, what do you think about the Kaiser rack? What do you think about this? What do you think of Franz Bosch? And Dan was like, nobody ever knows what I whispered in the ear for the athlete, what I said here. And that's where him and me and Stu McMillan and all these people would nerd out. And that to me was like, all right, now I really get the hip hop and MC versus rapper shit. Rappers are the people out there in SNC that are like, I good beats is the equivalent of fancy equipment and all this stuff, right? But a true MC and a lyricist is somebody that's like the simplest thing you say, the way you present yourself on the floor, the nature of the interactions, plus the simplicity of the programming and the implementation of it. Oh, you stand back and you're Dr. Dre and you've completed an opus. And to to the to the non-discerning coach, it looks horrendously like non-sexy, boring, and they're on to like the footwork king and Instagram. And you're like, that's where the real people really recognize the real people. And uh, yeah, I, I think a lot of this too, just to cap on that hero's journey, like why I'm so obsessed with music and parties when I was hospitalized for that year, I don't think I've ever really shared this. So new shit exclusive. Uh, you could only watch PG movies in the hospital. You couldn't read magazines or books of certain kinds because they didn't want you to have like you know, even, even sports would quote unquote trigger some people and, you know, whatever, anything that was body image or this or that. So all, like, all I did was listen to music. A bunch of the other patients would sleep or they'd do this. So I would just listen to music and find ways to make sense of what I was feeling at that point in my life at 14 and 15 through the words of other people expressing their angst in this. And uh, to me, it just all culminated at some point of understanding like why music and coaching and hip hop and this and craftsmanship all came to that might sound horrendously ridiculous. And I know I just blacked out, but you said no, you like the in depth. So no, I, it's, uh, no, it, uh, it, it's an incredible, I mean, the, uh, the parallels that you're drawing and the way that it makes sense to you. Um, it's, uh, it's elegant. It's cool. I mean, I, I always appreciate when somebody can pull on something else and be able to draw those parallels and be able to explain something in a different medium. So, I mean, the, uh, the music stuff is always, for me personally, music's always been extremely important in that I can tie music to feelings and I can tie it to times and like, you know, instantly it's like the, the world's best. Uh, it's better than a picture for me because I yep. can be, I, I can remember where I was when I heard it. I can remember the moment and different pieces and like the influence that it had. And like, all of a sudden it's like, uh, uh music for me triggers memories a lot more than when somebody like, Hey, do you remember this? And, uh, and then I'll hear the, or I'll hear some music associated with that time period and be like, oh shit. Like, uh, the other day I heard, um, uh, it was like on some, uh, like spot or a, uh, satellite radio. Uh, remember the song Laffy Taffy? Oh yeah. Yeah. D, so, D for Ronaldo. Uh, yeah. The Laffy, uh, they used to play that during TV timeouts in 2006. So like every, uh, like every game we went out to. Literally at TV timeouts somewhere in the third or fourth quarter, they would always play the Laffy Taffy song. 
and uh, Brian Waters and like the dudes would always dance. And I just thought it was hysterical. And like, I remember standing on the field and hearing the Laffy Taffy. It's like hearing uh, Welcome to the Jungle, which they played before every kickoff, you know, uh, you know, or, um, you know, songs that they played Kansas City Chiefs or, you know, songs I listened to before the game or, you know, going to pick up Kyle Turley, uh, you know, listening to, you know, Raining Blood by Slayer or the time we got to go hear Allison Chains, uh, you know, play in a, in, in a live deal. I mean, there's just so much music associated or, you know, uh, skateboarding down to go buy Led Zeppelin uh, CDs at this UCD place. So, uh, you know, there's all these different time periods associated with music. And I was trying to explain it to my daughter. I remember the first time I ever heard uh, NWA was I was riding with my brother. My brother just got his license. I was in the car with him, 14 years old, maybe 13. And that and that came on the radio, which blew my fucking mind to this day, that NWA straight out of Compton was on playing on the radio. Straight out of Compton, crazy yeah. named Dex. And, and they like didn't bleep it. And the guy was like, I don't think we're allowed to play that. I mean, <laughs> and, it, and it was like on, you know, so... Uh, all the different music associated with, uh, you know, with time periods. And it's amazing how like songs can like trigger certain memories. And so it makes extreme sense to me, especially with the, the hip hop stuff. Cause you know, I mean, I, I was a minority, you know, playing in the NFL. I mean, there's not that many white dudes that do that job. So, I mean, obviously the music choices weren't necessarily like we had to deal the strongest dude. I got to pick the music. So whenever I walked in the weight room, I just fucking always changed it. And then people would yell and I'd be like, all right, we'll pick something that you're stronger than me at. Let's fucking do it. Let's go. And, yeah, yeah. And, uh, but like the, uh, I, you know, I've always had a good cultural appreciation for, for like rap and hip hop, but like it just kind of deviated towards something where I hear it. And I don't know if that's age. Cause I think text told me that they did some research where there's a certain point in your life where you're most susceptible and then it crystallizes your choices in music uh-huh. and haircuts and haircuts. And so, uh, I always worry a little bit, like, am I too crystallized within my own time period? And then I listen to it and you're like, ah, Still not, it's still not as good as, as what we heard. Yeah. I mean, I, and it's interesting. First of all, I want to acknowledge you brought up something supremely relevant and impactful that it is more, for me, it's more impactful than a photograph too. And I thought about, as I was listening to you, the song, some of the songs that you mentioned, what would that be for me? And the D Pharrell song, you know, that, that reminds me of, I, you know, I went to Kansas state for undergrad and I remember there's this always this place that you ended the night on for better or worse. It was either tubbies or porters. Tubbies was like the place that you dance or whatever. And all that, the lean with it, rock with it stuff was really big then. So I remember that at tubbies at porters, it would usually end with like King of wishful thinking by go West or something like that. Um, welcome to the jungle. It's funny. I either think of the, the movie, the program, you remember that with yeah. Omar Epps oh, yeah. or I think of, there was this really, I think it was a bad movie. I don't remember it that well, but Jim Carrey played a villain in a movie called the Deadpool. Yeah. And there was this scene, right. And I remember they were playing welcome to the jungle, but immediately. Yeah. Or yeah, like Clint, Clint Eastwood. Yeah. There you go. And, uh, uh, red dirt country. One of my ex-girlfriends got me onto that. Whenever I think of cross Canadian rag, or whenever I go to St. Louis, I think of cross Canadian ragweed. Cause I remember seeing them at a concert in St. Louis. And so all hit a place and it's almost like, and that's probably, you know, to, to a degree other than transitions and to keep audiences lively. I don't think it's coincidence why they do that in movies. I can drive through this town called Nashville, Illinois, Illinois and the cross Canadian ragweed song fighting for will come on in my head. Cause I remember that played one time when I was coming back from the airport, you know, in the holidays when I worked at SIU. So yeah, it's, it is why I'd have to imagine almost all your listeners, if we surveyed them would be like, if we listed five songs, they're going to be like, pop, pop, pop. Yeah. 
Well, um, you know, the age old, like, uh, you'll never remember what somebody says, but they'll remember how you made them feel. Um, mm. You know, like, fuck, that's, uh, I'm pretty sure I've seen that at Luke what? Summer's house, you know, right next to Live, Love, Laugh in his kitchen. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but like, uh, so, you know, there's cheesy stuff like that. But I think what's so interesting about music, uh, especially when you see music that becomes ageless. So, I mean, I remember I was probably seven, eight years old riding in the back of uh, my brother's buddies, uh, you know, Volkswagen Jetta, listening to Master of Puppets. And at like with on blown speakers and riding in the back because we had to go somewhere. And my brother was babysitting me and we got in the car with his, his buddy who had a license. I think he was 15. I think I was nine. And riding there listening to Master of Puppets. And when I got out, he gave me a, uh, uh, a Master of Puppets cassette that he had ripped. He had like 20 of them. And he had gone and ripped them all and then was just giving them to people to try to get more people to listen to Metallica. And so I was nine years old and I had this Metallica tape and it was the first time I ever heard it was in his car. And like to this day, I still listen to it as if this just came out. And I always think if this hit the air, airwaves today and was released by Metallica, it would still be a fucking hit. Uh, like, you know, um, you know, like think about Led Zeppelin. I mean, any of their stuff, if you heard it today, you'd be like, ah, oh, that's pretty good. I mean, that could play right next to uh, Ed Sheeran. Who's another extremely talented dude? I watched a story about him and and uh, uh, J- uh, Jamie Fox, how he slept on Jamie Fox's couch and Jamie Fox oh, took really? him to these places. Oh, dude, there's an incredible origin story for Ed Sheeran and Jamie Fox that uh, he talked about on a on a talk show that I've watched recently. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's like such interesting origin stories. But what I'm always searching for is like, is that music timeless? It's the first time that my daughters are ten. I play them that song. If they hear it and they're like, "Wow, this is pretty good." Is, you know, and they've never heard it before and they don't have any historical reference for that music. Is it timeless? Is it classic? Mm. Yeah. I think, I think, sorry, go ahead. No, I went to a wedding on Saturday and then, you know, the, the couple's first dance song, that's the moment. Uh, I actually interrupted the DJ and had to remind him that we were in Texas. He was pulled from somewhere out uh, west. You mean California? Well, yeah, that's exactly where. There's a lot of cowboy hats in the audience. Not a lot of cowboys. That's mm. what I had to tell this man. So, like, we need some country western dancing, please. So, uh, yeah, people were out on the dance floor, but kids were taking over the dance floor. So his feeling was like, oh, there's people out here. I'm doing a good job. But the only people who were dancing were, like, seven-year-olds just doing crazy stuff. So then as Did soon as bring he- him out a little western swing? Yeah, as soon no, as, I mean, as soon as he put on like dancing music, people started to dance versus just like, uh, you know, party, have fun here. Wedding country DJ, and western, country which is and what western. you. <laughs> so the the, the fi- like finally the last three songs, people were out there to dance together mm. and shut down the evening. You know, I did a little bit of deep dive on the internet, and the type of music that I like is known as western swing music. That's like Merle Haggard and a lot of that stuff. I want to know, I, I need you to educate me on this. I didn't know the gentleman at the time, but I was in Amsterdam teaching a course once and I happened to find myself in an establishment later that day sitting next to a gentleman who eventually introduced himself as Sturgill Simpson. And Sturgill was just a really nice guy. We had a good conversation for about two and a half hours. And then I went home and was bringing up the conversation to somebody and mentioned I met this guy named Sturgill. And they go, oh my God, was this Sturgill Simpson? And apparently this guy is a huge star. Apparently he's just a massive, and I don't know what kind of music, because just like anything, there's subgenres, right? So what, if you guys are familiar with with country it, or him, what subgenre would you say Sturgill Simpson is? 
in uh, singer songwriter because he writes and sings his own music. Yeah. So if you go to Nashville, there's a whole band of songwriters, and then dudes like George Strait, who are amazing singers, take their music, and you know George Strait works his wonders. But then so we look at does the, George Strait not write his own music? No. So then we oh. look at Cody Canada, the lead singer of Cross Canadian Ragweed. His whole team now he's he's solo, but he's singer songwriter, and that's more of. Yeah, and that's more of like the a now an Americana. Well, that's so, kind of that red dirt country. Well, yes, and then there like there's an Americana wave between Oklahoma, Texas, and then uniquely like some East Coast stuff like Maryland, where there's parts of Maryland and Virginia yeah. that are redneck, yeah. and I love it. It's great. So it's like this this interesting tune and wave of this Americana, Texas country. And then the that take from the singer songwriter, like nothing against who who was the guy I brought up yesterday? The guy um, uh, we're Texas, screw you, we're from Texas. Um, Merle Haggard. No, that was no. I remember we talked about it yesterday. The guy lives in Wimberley. Mm-hmm. He's like seventy five. Yeah, ah, I can't remember his name. It's Growl. Uh, yeah, no, but there's a whole uh, Ray Wiley Hubbard. Yeah, Ray Wiley Hubbard. He's kind of a fixture here in Austin, and you know lives out in, in Wimberley, not far from where uh, Tex went to that wedding. And so there's all of this kind of interesting kind of uh, Texas red dirt country singer songwriter stuff opposed from oh, yeah. like the stuff you hear on the radio, if, which is just like 25 people writing a song. Yeah, if it's on the radio and it's labeled country, that's what kind of pisses me off. In that the People hate country music, and there's this whole wave, at least of Texas country, like the, the cross-Canadian ragweed folks, that people, if they actually listen to, would dig. I was that guy, I'll be honest. I mean, I liked Garth Brooks, When the Thunder Rolls, and all that, but I got into hip-hop and rock and alternative early and all that, but... I used to hate country because the majority of country I heard was super depressing. And then, like I said, it was, it was that woman that I dated in college that introduced me and also a close friend of mine named Libby Hiltner, uh, got me, got me into cross Canadian ragweed and some of that red dirt. And I'm like Johnny Cooper, who I think is a little bit more pop now. I, um, I, I could name more. It's on my Spotify, but it's escaping me, but I was like, all right. And it was good Saturday, Sunday morning lifts you know, when you're just in the garage and you have some time to kind of turn on college game day and you can kind of just, you've hit your main lifts that week. And so that morning, just kind of for whatever you want to do, I, I love turning on that uh, red dirt country and just having some fun there. Mm-hmm. I think well, it's always good music to drink beer too. Well, I do everything to it. Yeah. Cause it's the only <laughs> music I listen to. You guys are talking about, uh, this rap. Uh, well, time out. Maybe you should uh, come into our world a little bit, buddy. You're sitting there saying you need to give country do- a chance coming to our world. Uh, okay. You got it. I'll start with your playlist on Spotify or listeners following this release of this episode. You, you know, what's funny is on occasion when, uh, uh, up in the gym, we'll like turn on Spotify and a playlist will just randomly pop up and I'll be listening to it and I'll be like, Oh, this has to be me. I mean, this has to be my playlist. Cause there's only one asshole I know that would pair up these music or uh, up these different songs. Yes. Well, <laughs> we, you get the, I'll, I'll say this to our listeners, Brett and John will come together. In Power Athlete HQ Gym for a moment in time to create a playlist and uh, experience his uh, the apprenticeship. I feel like uh, uh, his knowledge of rap and hip hop is so deep. Uh, I'm actually pretty excited because uh, um, I think mine's like more peripheral. Uh, like I always appreciated, especially now that was a cool thing with doing the job. Like I said, being as a minority, I was always exposed to some really cool music. 
uh, like I played next to Trey Thomas and Trey was from Florida and there was all this like really interesting kind of like, uh, you know, Florida rap like this just versus kind of what was New York versus California. And I just appreciated hearing like the different subgenres based on regions. And uh, while a lot of it I thought was awful, a lot of it was actually pretty good. You know, I remember the first time uh, I heard Outcast bombs over Baghdad. Mm. Yep. Dude, that fucking, uh, we almost literally, our locker room almost exploded. Like, like uh, people were fucking going crazy, kicking in lockers, going nuts. And I was like, holy shit, Outcast bombs over Baghdad. Still a great fucking song. Yeah. I, aside from a an excellent exposure to rap music coming up at our event in March, what else will people take away, Brett? Uh, from the event in March? Yeah, well, you know, I remember a, a friend of mine, Michael Silbernagel, was like, tell me how it would help me keep my job. And I go, it's pretty simple, man. Communications is the one thing in life guaranteed to make your life either better or worse, depending on how you do at it, right? Like, and so the, the whole thing is, I, I understand text, nobody wakes up and is like, oh my God, I want to be a better communicator. But people do wake up and say, I don't want to waste as much time. I want to get more done. I want to build more trust and I want to deal with less trauma. And that's essentially what this stuff is about, right? It is, it is a deep dive all back act and research, but also heavily applied into how you can understand how to play the game of different social situations around you. Whether you're a strength coach at a university that's trying to get funding for something, or you're somebody that's a nurse and you deal with Becky, just some ass hat at work or what everybody's got situations they deal with in life. I mean, we had a strength coach recently that came to uh, one of ours that, you know, they just had an issue with their father there, you know, and, and I don't want to get too into it because I want to like uh, protect their privacy. We've had firefighters that need to work better with certain teams. We've had SWAT officers. So anybody that's ever like felt like, Hey, I'm trying to do really well at what I do, but I either have some issues with conflict. I need to be a better negotiator. Um, I'm just not confident. I, I, I freeze up. These are the things for you. The bottom line is it's a chance for people to be able to rehearse and refine for some of the biggest moments in their life. And we often get the question now, like, hey, is this just for extroverts? Is this for this? Is this for people that are already good communicators? No, this is for people that by and large, you know, yes, you can be skilled, but people that just kind of freeze up or they want to kind of, uh, I think one gentleman that that worked in the Premier League of Rugby in, in the UK came to ours and he goes, dude, I was just ready for the hard stuff. He goes, I appreciate sets and reps and, and there's nothing against that, but I've, you know, what I know is kind of what, you know, most of our guys are not advanced trainees and we have kind of our, our programs built out to like the advanced methods aren't going to get much crazier. He goes, but what I deal with is argumentative people on the medical side. What I deal with is GMs that don't understand this. So I, I don't really know how to market something that everybody should intuitively know is a huge pain in all of our asses, you know? And, and I think that sometimes if, if, if I have to get critical with people, it's like, I hear people say, oh, I'm a lifelong learner. I'm a coach. I'm like, well, are you really doing everything you can to improve? 96% of con ed and coaching space is spent on technical stuff. And it's really hard for people to level up if they stay in their comfort zone all the time. So if you want a quantitative analysis of a qualitative experience, you want to connect with other people and you're kind of cool just getting into divergent thinking, different conversations, collaborations, and learning more about social science and human behavior and what makes us do the weird things we do and how we can get better at it, come. Nobody's trying to pick you apart in a negative way. I think the other biggest selling point, man, is it's a, it's a play. It's a really cool place for people to come make mistakes. I don't feel like there's a lot of workshops, sans your guys, and, and maybe a couple others where it's like mistakes are encouraged. You know, a lot of times coaches kind of have to flex and puff up their chest and, you know, they're really worried about getting involved in practicals. This is something where day one, we make it clear. This isn't a game to be won. 
like that's the nature of improv you in situations where like there, there's no winning. You just got to adapt. You can't, you got to laugh at your, you got to do these things. Um, and so it's just fun. Educational, but also something that allows them to laugh at themselves. And then something they can take back at their team and say, Hey, we actually have this rubric where we can now grade this and we can use it when we're doing zoom calls, when we're doing real coaching, when I'm giving a presentation, when I'm talking to my wife, like you can go back and evaluate this stuff. And yeah, I just, I, it's, I could keep going, man. But at the end of the day, the people who this is for know it. And the people that it's not for quit listening to our conversation 30 minutes ago, you know? No, it sounds, uh, it sounds cool. I, I was fortunate two weeks ago to go to, um, you know, Craig Douglas, we have on the podcast, who's a ex cop and teaches a bunch of combative stuff. Um, we had him on the podcast and he's like, Hey, you should come to one of my courses. And, uh, one of my things is that if we have somebody on and they invite me to a course. I do my best to always be there. And so he hit me up a couple of days before and said, Hey, we're having a course in Austin. Would you come? Great. What do I need? You need a mouthpiece and a cup and a gun and 200 rounds. I was like, all right, I'll show up. Yep. So it starts Friday night and, uh, I have no fucking idea what I'm getting myself into. And I have a whole bunch of, I got shot with a bunch of Sims, which is kind of even more funny. <laughs> but, uh, Friday night was pretty wild in that it was about, um, basically like situational awareness and how to like engage people and just like how to read and uh, basically everything that I picked up being a bouncer on like how to like gauge where people are being hostile, closing distance, how to like, you know, like just a bunch of shit that you should invariably know on like if you're going to navigate a bar or, you know, real life situation on how to not get your ass kicked. Yeah. And more importantly, if you feel like you're going to get your ass kicked on how to like make moves to make sure it not happen. I call it street smarts. And uh, it was pretty interesting. Street um, yeah. yeah, no, I mean, so I... Uh, when I was a you know college football player, we were so broke and so far below the poverty line uh, that I had a job working security for these illegal raves in San Francisco. What? And then I got to work. Yeah, I, I used to like <laughs> like illegal like renting out warehouses. Um, you know, bring in like illegal warehouses, drugs. You know, kids, glow sticks, dancing, ecstasy, the whole deal. And we, I used to work security and work the door for these illegal raves. And then I and then I worked some at some legit clubs too. But uh, I learned a lot about like. Being able to spot bad guys, situational awareness, you know, like just observing things. And it was funny as we got into the course, uh, it was uh, it was funny because Craig's like, oh, you're pretty good at disarming. I'm like, well, I've had to avoid a lot of fights because at the end of the day, uh, I don't want to get in trouble and I want to give people money. So uh, it was just pretty interesting that like a lot of people really struggle because they haven't put themselves in these situations. So the long bewinded point or uh, uh, overly winded point that I'm trying to get to is when people come to your course and you're teaching them all of these different techniques in this, is there anything that you recommend for them to do to continue to push outside their comfort zone? Like Once uh, they're done. You, know, you always hear people, yeah, like uh, improv or, you know, get up and go to a, oh, an open mic at a sure. comedy store or a Toastmasters or just anything. I mean, work security, go, go work at a homeless shelter. I'm just wondering about like, you know, these were some of the, um, you know, recommendations Craig made to help people be more comfortable in these situations. I wonder within your stuff, because we're such in this, like zoom video age where, you know, uh, like if you were sitting before, I feel like we're having a good conversation, but the conversation would be so much more rich in person. Oh yeah. So I mean, wonder, and we like, cover that, right. We cover things like media richness and why certain people don't change and all that. But just to, to answer this briefly, and then I got to get across town is yes, we, so we do three levels. Uh, it's kind of like, think of it like movement programming, John, right? Like you can teach somebody a body weight squat, then you can load it with a kettlebell. Then eventually you can get to bands and chains and accentuated eccentrics and all that. We start people off with like adaptive improv. So it's like, you know, 
it's it's more abstract. These are kind of adapted theater games, but they always teach an underlying skill, right? Like like listening or being able to build off the narrative of somebody else. But then we do tactical role playing where this is like, I'm asking boss for a raise. I'm having a breakup. I'm whatever the real stuff you deal with in the world outside your window is. And then the third tier of that, our example of like accentuated eccentrics and bands and chains and any of that is then we'll add additional constraints and, and text. It's changed a lot since you've come. So you'll see it. Um, but we do, we video it and we also give them this rubric. And so certain people, depending on which, you know, tier they sign up for and, and every tier is 1.8 CEUs and all this, but, you know, we always encourage people through this field guide, like, Hey, continue to videotape yourself, use this evaluation. The more you can videotape yourself, the more you can kind of use these things. Uh, I use them in my job. I mean, I've gone, I, when I first did this, I would have the rubric next to my desk and I'd be like, okay, how did I do with the orchestration category? How did I do with my use of questions? How did I do with this category? Which influence tactics did I use to explain things? Did I always use logic or rational persuasion or did I use some ingratiation techniques? Some of this is going to be you know, foreign to anybody that's not initiated on this. But when they leave, the biggest thing that they have, John, is a language, a new language to talk about these things and analyze as opposed to being like, my verbals and nonverbals were good. Oh, John, John was crossing his arms. So I use mimicry to cross my arms. Like that's so superficial, right? That's, that's just saying mm-hmm. like you're fit because you have muscles. Um, so the biggest thing is we give them a language. We give them uh, post-session strategy calls and we do a lot of kind of follow-up strategy work. So we'll walk people through the material of how they can continue to utilize it. So it actually has Monday morning value. Copy. Cool. No, man, it sounds like a great course, dude. And we're, we're excited. I mean, Tex has mentioned it to me at least every single day for the last. Well, month. one thing I want to tell you guys before I hop off is like, thank you for being good hosts. You know, we really try to do something to make this financially feasible for people. And obviously, like, I can't just leave my house and my family and teach a 20 hour workshop for like free. Right. And so we have to price this and it's extremely competitive price. Like I'll, I'll never, we give more than a thousand hours of free content away a year. I'm, I'm beyond the point now where I'm ever going to apologize about charging for what I do. It's our job. Um, but sometimes what we did is like with these hosts, like, you know, we, we asked them, Hey, you know, we'll come and we'll waive your fee. If you can help with signups and, and market to your target market, And man, everybody's well-intentioned, but some people like all of a sudden there's a month out and they're like, oh, could you do a post on this? Could you do a post on that? And and we're like, it's just very hard to find good hosts that are accountable, that are mature. And you guys have sold this out in like record pace. And I just want to thank you. Like it just shows your professionalism and your decorum and everything. Well, you got to remember, we have taught collectively well over 300. But that's what I mean. You just put like around the globe yeah, and it. have dealt with uh, this exact science where, what do you mean? I have to do something like the, what we call the baby bird, where it's like, hey, man, like here, here's how you sell it. This is how you push it. Right. Like if you if we can get a packed house, it's going to be a great time. And then we have people that would do fuck all. And then you show up and they would always like give you this look like. Well, I didn't really push it. And we're like, oh, no, we, we know we can tell that you that you did nothing. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, and they're like, well, we don't I'm like, no, you didn't because we would have seen something. We like, put it, one it, post on very, Instagram. Very, You're like, yeah, because everybody goes on Instagram to just sign up for like. Yeah. And we, we could yeah, go on. We'll talk about that offline. But I just but, want to convey uh, thanks and respect towards that. Awesome. No, I mean, I, I really think and this is um, if anything is positive coming out of this COVID environment and all this other stuff, I really believe that the in-person seminar is is making a comeback. I think it was kind of dead there for a little bit because CrossFit just beat it like a dead horse. Mm-hmm. But I really think it's starting to come back. And having gone to Craig's seminar, uh, it really was, it, it was actually like very uh, fulfilling and like refilling for me 
to see people and see some community teach and like to see these kind of like transformations take place. And I think uh, we saw that every weekend and I loved it. And, uh, you know, and uh, there's no way to replicate that through a Zoom or a video. I mean, like all these people that are like following training programs and people with like with Zoom and video and through a TV and a screen. It's so fucking sterile. And um, no, dude, I'm, I'm stoked you're coming. And uh, um, I think it's going to be a hell of an event. So we're, we're glad to have supported it. And thanks for text for making it happen. Likewise, guys. Yeah. I, it, it is the second most impactful weekend seminar I've been Cross football numero uno. Ooh. So wanted to uh, help old pal out and then empower Power Athlete Nation. A lot of block ones signed up. Yeah, no, I mean, we, we had, uh, we had um, JL uh, with uh, RPR. And, yeah, and that was uh, sold pretty well. And uh, yeah, so we, you know, it also helps to have your own private facility. Yeah, and I, I got a, a cool vision, and we'll work with Brett on that. And then we have uh, the practicals up in our space, and then our education down here in our. Office. Yeah, and now yeah, share fine. this, and then I really got to Joe, or I'm going to get I'm going to get yelled at. We're working on something again, exclusive for you guys, based on the respect that we have for you. We're working on something where. I'll, I'll say this, we're working on um, facilitating a compound of our own, uh, acquiring one. And I want you to know that carte blanche, anytime you want to run anything you want to do, this is out in the rural countryside, out in the cut, because we do things that are kind of intimate, right? Like we're not trying to do the big mega conference. And I just want you to know you always have a second home with us. Well, thank um, you. I appreciate it. We'll probably take you up on that. All right, guys. Yes. I got to run. I appreciate yes. it. All right. Artofcoaching.com. Artofcoaching.com. If you're interested art in the workshops, artofcoaching.com slash apprenticeship. Um, yeah, I mean, artofcoaching.com is everything. We really try to make the customer journey very easy, you know, and uh, that's always the best way to reach out to me. My social media is linked there. Everything's linked there. Um, and, and that's where it is. We'll make sure and send you guys anything you need. We have tons of free resources for people out there that are new, young, old, young, you know, whatever in the profession. So, we're a small business. Check us out. We're the people on Main Street just trying to do good. There's no evil agenda here. And on that note, thanks for tuning in another episode of Power Up the Radio. Bye, guys. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. You can find Coach Brett Bartholomew at Coach underscore Brett B. Until next time, bye! Drop on, drop on, drop on.